dead season is over for at least a week. It's NBA free agency time. It's NHL free agency time. NHL draft a little bit of a bust in terms of what we were expecting trade-wise. But we'll see if this picks up in the next week. I really wasn't expecting one of the bigger deals to be Corey Perry to Chicago. One of the other ones would be Taylor Hall to Chicago. I thought the rest of the league would get a little bit more in the mix. And now we've got some D-Day stuff. Not really, but kind of. It's more fun to think of it that way with Toronto Maple Leafs when it comes to their contract negotiations. Uh, Not exactly the best updates, I would say, if you're a Leafs fan, when I talked to Myrtle yesterday. But yeah, we're going to get Frank Cervelli on in just a couple of minutes and see what he thinks is going to happen with some of these moves and what free agents are likely to return to Toronto and, yeah, what he's hearing when it comes to the contractual stuff with the big guys and what their markets could be. But before that, just a couple of quick house cleaning items. One... It's really starting to feel like Fred Van Vliet's a goner, and it's starting to feel more and more likely that he leaves for nothing, which is bad. That is bad. That would not be good. All of a sudden, you're looking back at that Clippers offer that kind of stunk, but you go, huh, maybe should have done that. Maybe you should have read the tea leaves on that one a little bit better. What I, what I don't really get from the Raptors' point of view is how he, they would have misread Fred's potential market to this degree, like we knew there were a lot of teams that were interested in Fred Van Vliet at the deadline. And maybe some of them didn't really show the Raptors any love when it came to trade equity because a lot of them felt pretty confident that they could point, uh, poach the point guard. But unless you feel really, really solid that you were going to be able to at least sign and trade Fred Van Vliet, it's really hard to wrap your mind around how Toronto could end up letting him leave the franchise. But yeah, tip the cap to the guy who has his entire branding built around bet on yourself. The guy who had the draft party and goes undrafted and stands there and tells everyone that he's going to make good on their investment in him personally. Because it really seems like he's going to get 40 million bucks. And yeah, the James Harden news might have been funny for everybody around basketball going, God, James Harden again with this stuff? Like now you're going to leave Philly? Now you're going to leave Embiid? What, so you can go to the Clippers? So you can go to the Knicks? Those present better opportunities for you than playing with the MVP, Joel Embiid? I guess so. Like, I texted our boy Ariel Hawani yesterday, who's a giant Knicks fan. I asked him, hey, would you want James Harden? And the response was lengthy. And, uh, yeah, he was not interested, let's just say. Not interested. Uh, One of the faces of Knicks fandom, not hoping... James Harden lands there for a bad contract in R.J. Barrett. But that news that he's opting into the, I think it's $36 million with the Sixers and then asking for a trade, all of a sudden, Houston's off the table. There's no trade that's happening for James Harden. Houston's not giving up assets. This is a part of the way that they're building out their franchise. So Fred Van Vliet moves to the top of the heap. And if you look after Fred Van Vliet, yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of free agents. But in terms of fit with their group, an adult, a point guard, someone who is going to bring that winning mentality to Houston, a guy who is famous for his summer runs where his teams don't lose. If you're Houston, you've got, I don't want to say a bunch of lottery ticket guys, but kind of. They don't really have anything kind of dead set. 
You would love to bring in Fred Van Vliet. And if he's only asking for a two-year commitment and you have to pay him a bunch of cap space that you're not going to be using over that course of time, why not? Like, what, what does Houston have to lose? We went over this with Jake Fisher, and it, it's uh, so annoying at this point talking about, you know, Houston and state tax and all this different stuff. But, yeah, the Raptors can't match the financial muscle of what the Houston Rockets can offer Fred Van Vliet. And they're not signing trading with Toronto. Like, there is no reason for them to give Toronto anything. They can just take him outright and remove him from the Raptors. And now you're starting to see all these, like, secondary options that could be returning to Toronto. And it's not, it's not very rosy, right? Like, you're hoping for Gabe Vincent at best, overpaying him after a hot run with the Miami Heat. I, not really sure how I feel about stuff like that. Grange tweeted, hey, regardless of the outcome, a guy like Nikhil Alexander-Walker, that's a, it's a pretty steep cliff going from Fred Van Vliet to him. So we're going to watch this over the next 24 hours or so, but it, it, this feels like it's going to get settled fairly soon, so maybe I shouldn't have even led this with the podcast. Either way, man, it is just a nightmare outcome, and I've said this all along. I've been consistent with this all along. To me, if I'm the Raptors and you miss out on him, you lose out on him, it just it has to shift the way that you're looking at the run-it-back plan. Like, it has to materially affect the way that you're looking at your timeline here. And, of course, Masai can end up holding on to OG Ananobi and run his contract through the season and discuss extensions with him. They can continue to hold on to Pascal Siakam. Nothing becomes urgent, 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 especially given that, you know, they don't have their pick next year and its protection is quite awful. So, yeah, there's no... This isn't a pressing matter for them when it comes to the trades, but... It's just, it's really difficult to envision how they're going to start to make these pieces fit and how they're going to make this work from a competitive standpoint with, once again, the dual timelines of the Scotty Barnes and now let's throw uh, Grady Dick into there. And to the lesser extent, OG, but to the fuller extent, Pascal Siakam. Anyways, um, Sheldon Keefe spoke to the media yesterday. I watched it. I, I don't really know what to say about it. He said that, he felt uncertain at times when Trey Living took over. Yeah, that's pretty natural. Uh, he was kind of deflecting some questions. He looked, I didn't, he, he looked like the reporters had him really pressed up against the wall. It was a pretty intense scrum. But I didn't really glean anything from it. Really didn't take anything from it. The only thing that kind of hit me is, and it just feels a little strange right now, with the Leafs having a coach that was brought in by Dubas, Dubas's guy. And then when you're watching the draft and you're looking at the stage, it's like, okay, cool, Shane Doan is there and Brad Trey Living is there and they're part of the mix. And then you're looking at a lot of the other guys like Wes Clark and Pridham and there are others that are on that, that stage who are the remnants of the Dubas regime. And there was a lot of stuff leaking during that time just a ton about people being upset or people being shocked about Kyle Dubas's departure and how it was going to impact the future and who was going to be here and who was going to end up leaving. And by my accounting, other than Jason Spezza leaving, there, there wasn't really any meaningful movement. And I thought that there was going to be. And I'm not saying that there needed to be, but this feels awkward. Like, they did it on the fly. There was so much stuff going on. 
They end up keeping Wes Clark to run their draft, even though some people thought that he would be one of the primary guys that was going to go out the door. Brandon Pridham got those offers from other places. At least Calgary wanted to interview him. They never end up letting him leave. It, it's, it's been quiet in Leafland, right? It's been quiet. There hasn't been a ton. Even Myrtle yesterday when we were talking about him and how we're trying to read the tea leaves on the Nylander stuff, and he's saying it's really quiet. No one's really saying anything. But it does remain a curiosity point for me how you're integrating the Dubas regime with the tree-living guys. And I know ultimately you can go just say, like, oh, J.D., aren't they all Shanahan guys? Like, no, not really. A lot of these dudes are Dubas disciples. They're guys that you would have expected would have left along with him and gone with Spezzo or been moved on from the organization. So, yeah, it's just weird. Optically, that was sort of the first time it really hit me was seeing them all up on that stage together and going, okay, there's Stone, Trey Living guy. All right, Trey Living. All right, there's a Dubas guy. There's a Dubas guy. There's a Dubas guy. There's people that were, yeah, brought up within that organization by Dubas that were picked from video coach guys that are moving up the organization to, yeah, guys running the draft like Wes Clark. So I I am curious how that impacts things for the Leafs moving forward here when they're in such a weird transitional time despite it feeling like everything is just going to end up being the status quo and whether or not any of this impacts that. Anyways, Frank Cervelli, insider and president of Daily Faceoff and the PHWA, a guy that was on the floor getting... Uh, some milk from Paul Bissonette. He said it right away. He knew it was getting memed. It did get memed. Good morning, Frank. What's up, buddy? I'm good. Still recovering a bit from that hot chicken, but I'm doing all right. Yeah. <laughs> you did well, though, man. I I don't know how people do that hot one show. I like I like a little bit of spicy food, but I got real pasty white skin, and once I start to eat it, like I sweat profusely. I turn completely beet red. So good for you that you didn't end up looking like a tomato like you didn't look awful it was it was all right man you pulled it off well i'm glad and um look i think sweating profusely was like the operative phrase for everyone in nashville i'm thankful to be back home it was 41 degrees yesterday and just as humid as humanly possible to take i'm just not built for that like packing my suitcase to go home it was like I needed a hazmat suit just to get everything in there because I was dealing with some serious toxic waste putting it, putting all those clothes back in the bag. So I, I thought there were going to be more moves, and I, I guess like that's a pretty low bar considering the first round had no moves. And I know we got Pierre-Luc Dubois a couple of days before, and I know we got the Taylor Hall salary dump-ish trade that happened. Yesterday, Corey Perry moves for a seventh-round pick, but w- why aren't we seeing more? I think part of the reason why on the draft floor we didn't see more was the teams really liked what they had in front of them on the draft board. That much is clear. And the other part is we're going into a fourth consecutive year of a flat salary cap. And teams, A, don't have money, and B, the teams that don't have money that would like to move contracts are finding out how expensive and difficult that is to do. Even teams that have valuable pieces and commodities like Connor Hellebuck in net, the Winnipeg Jets are having a really difficult time drumming up a market for him because there's only so many teams that can actually afford to pay the goalie $9.5 bucks a year. And that puts the Jets in a tough spot. Not only can he dictate where he wants to go, but on top of that, the, the market's already limited as it is. 
Yeah, it it hasn't looked very good. I, I it is confusing though. Not really considering that it's just this is one team's actions, but to sort of deviate a little bit here, Corey Perry getting four million bucks this season. I, I know that like Chicago has to show him a little bit more money to make sure that he wants to play there instead of going to a competitive team. But I I I guess when you're looking at how valuable cap space is to this many teams. How does a group like that justify using up $4 million in cap rather than taking on more assets? Well, part of it is they still need to spend to get to the salary cap floor. Um, but that's what I mean. Why entered... not take bad contracts from teams? Like, you're the, you're the landing spot. Because they don't want room. the player. They want, they want curated selection. So I'll give you an example. The Edmonton has offered Kyler Yamamoto for free. They offered him around the league, and they finally got the Detroit Red Wings to take him. But the Red Wings also wanted Clem Costin as part of the package, almost as a sort of so-called sweetener, in order to take on Yamamoto's deal. The Blackhawks, I believe, looked at Yamamoto and said, "Kind of intriguing, top you know top nine piece that you, you could plug on your wing." But the Hawks don't really love undersized players. I, I think just look at their their track record of trading those guys away. Um, that they followed up with this week. And they wanted a certain kind of player and a certain – they needed some top six help. They got it from Taylor Hall. They wanted a bottom six um, grizzled vet. They got it in Nick Foligno. They wanted leadership. They got that from Corey Perry. And they're not just going to take on anything just to take it on. And in the meantime, with Foligno and Perry, you're right, they had to pay extra – in order to get them to basically come there. And in Perry's case, there were some other wrinkles that he was asking for, too, that, you know, he's looking for the Chicago Blackhawks to be open to moving him at the deadline if he wants to go to a contender. So, you know, it's kind of worked out for Chicago that they've been able to, when you have that kind of cap space, you can be choosy about how you spend it. And getting an additional third round pick or you know whatever it might be sometimes isn't all that attractive when you then have to deal with the baggage on the other end of it so do you think that things are going to start to heat up trade market wise over the next couple of days or are we going to start to see this actually extend into the free agency period for the first time in a long time i think it's going to extend in, into free agency in terms of trade and the reason for that is it's a quick turn like usually you have a week to 10 days between the draft and free agency. Today's sort of the one day in between that everyone's scrambling home. And now they're turning their sights to the market. And I don't want to say that some teams are surprised because obviously they're not, they could read the calendar, but there's a lot of business to get done, even for pending UFAs on some of their own teams. Like the Carolina hurricanes don't have a goalie outside of Piotr Krochekov. And I don't think they're planning to have him be their number two next year, at least as far as I can tell. What are they doing with Freddie Anderson? Um, Why have some of those things not been addressed to this point? Does that mean that Anderson's going to market? Or does that mean they're going to find a deal today? There's a lot of stuff like that as examples that teams have just run out of time. The clock's run out. And now you're in a spot where, you have no trade clauses kicking in. And the Toronto Maple Leafs are a perfect example that, you know, as you're looking towards July 1, Canada Day tomorrow, it's, it becomes a little bit of a different landscape. 
So let's move to Toronto then. How, how much of the Matthews and the Nylander contracts could be holding up what they do with their own free agents? Which ones are you thinking about? Well, the two guys, Matthews and Nylander. Like, do, do they need a picture? No, no, no. Which what? other guy? Which other free agents are you asking about when you say that? What? Well, I'm going to say that pretty much all of them. Like, I was going to ask you just a straight-up question of which ones do you think are most likely to return. Shen seems to be the the number one guy if we're prognosticating who is actually going to come back. I don't know how it feels about the rest of the field, but, like, I'm I'm basically saying, do those guys and the uncertainty around them have a real impact, a material impact on whether or not Toronto brings anyone else back other than the guys like Shen? I don't think so. Um, <clears throat> and part of the reason for that is those guys are under contract for next season anyway. So you have an idea of what the cap looks like. And in terms of keeping which players you want to, that can be done right in the here and now. And just a, as a, a little parenthesis and side note on Shen, if he's going to be staying in Toronto, he's going to be leaving money on the table. And I think that's something that he's weighing today is basically how much less money because you're dealing with a guy that loved his time in Toronto was so happy to be back and think that there's a great opportunity to win there. But at the same time, he also hasn't been paid the last number of years, you know, making just over league minimum. I think it's three, four seasons now. And that's a lot of sort of income to catch up on. So there are some teams out there that think that Shen can get, you know, almost as close as three million bucks on the AAV, depending on where. And so, if the Leafs are offering, just for instance, one five, is he going to leave that one five on the table to stay in Toronto? That's basically what he's dealing with today. Uh, well, it, sorry. No, I was just going to get back to, to Matthews and Nylander, and really, I, is it connected to their free agents? Not necessarily. Um, I, I still think it's most likely that the, the other guys that are UFAs all walk. Hmm. So they lose the rest of the guys and that it really does. If Shen does leave, do you think that actually changes things with any other free agent like that they have in their own stable? Probably not. I think hmm. if anything, it just opens the door for the Leafs to get creative on the market and find what they can. Okay, so let, let's talk about the market and getting creative because even even if Shen does return, there's been some smoke that Tree Living wants to at least tinker on the blue line, that that's an area where the team feels like they can upgrade. H- how does that happen given their current cap situation, what's on the market, and the fact that, yeah, okay, so Justin Hall leaves, but everyone else is still there under contract? How does it... Sorry, say that one more time. How, how does that happen? Like, what does that look like? Is this Does this end up being trades? Like, if Toronto ends up bringing back Shen and they're talking about wanting to make changes on their blue line, what names do you start to circle in potential trades for Toronto if they're going to shake things up on the back end? Yeah, I do, I do think it does come down to trades. Like, I, And I can tell you from part of it is Brad Tree Living, this is what he does, market, and he's always trying to find out you know, which pieces are available and and what the prices are. And I think kind of what's been staggering to hear from me is just in conversation with other teams is that he's been checking the prices on some bigger name trade items, uh, some of the more expensive guys out there in terms of cap hit. And 
the line that I draw back to the Leafs is if he's looking in the higher end department, the Gucci, uh, Louis Vuitton area, as opposed to Walmart, that that would signal to me that he's at least somewhat curious about what the market looks like should he reach a dead end with William Nylander. Hmm. What names other than Carlson have you heard that are in that Gucci section? I personally, I, I, I don't really, I, I, I understand the, the call to ask about Carlson, but I don't understand the fit. Like I don't understand the cap hit. Here's my understanding on Carlson. Um, the sharks for the most part are really trying to, if they're moving him at all, are trying to cap the amount of salary retained to 20%, no higher than that. So that would knock Carlson down to essentially a $9.3 million cap hit. Where are the Toronto Maple Leafs going to come up with $9.3 million? No, that one seems unlikely. Um, especially, um, It would probably age. involve sending back Matt Murray and what? Well, I don't think that they have the draft pick capital, nor do they have the prospect capital, especially considering they don't want to move knives to make something like that happen. So, again, it would have to be something that does involve Marner and you're getting back more from the Sharks or Nylander and you're getting back more from the Sharks. But, yeah, you're right. That that feels like a little bit of a long shot. That's why I'm saying who like who else have you heard like names-wise, when it comes to the the big ticket items that he's checking in on, or has it just been Carlson? Uh, I think it's been all over the map. Go down my trade targets board. Like I think he's asked the Calgary Flames, "Hey, what's what's going on with Elias Lindholm? Um, what's what's the price for Noah Hannafin? Um, you know, those are just some players that he's familiar with from his former team." Um, don't don't think he's been involved in the goaltending department, which, by the way, still need a new deal for Samsonov, even though that's not exactly front burner as an RFA. Um, you got to figure out the goaltending situation. So more or less, my answer to your question is, any player that's out there, you could bet that there's an 85% chance that he's called that team to find out about. Hmm. That's just what he does. So... Do you think that Hannafin would even come to Toronto? Because I thought the understanding was that that guy is a USA or bust candidate. That That is the expectation. But the funny thing about Toronto is because it's so close that a lot of players kind of put it in a different category. Like it's not unusual to have, a, you know, a U.S.-born player with six of the seven Canadian teams on his no-trade list and Toronto being the one exception. Okay, so speaking of the goaltending, what, what's your understanding of – this is going to be a two-parter. One is what Samsonov is going to be looking at contractually because I feel like no one has talked about him so far. It's just been – and I know he's an RFA, so it's different. And, of course, when you've got Nylander, a bunch of unrestricted free agents, and Matthews, that they're going to soak up most of the oxygen. But part one is what do you think is happening with Samsonov and his deal? And part two is, all right, if we're talking about trades being difficult and the flat cap impacting teams, like – how difficult is it going to be for the Leafs to get off that Matt Murray money? What is what is the cost looking like? Like, have you heard any type of, yeah, t- thing that a team wants back in order to eat the Matt Murray money? So the funny thing about Matt Murray is I I heard this 
whispered over the week uh, at the draft was that if Kyle Dubas was still in charge of the Leafs, that at some point they were wondering about talking extension, which I was like, what? Uh Um, Maybe they were thinking bargain basement, you know, coming off of the season that he did. But even then I can't, it's still hard for me to fathom. You know, I believe he's an LTIR candidate based on, I I know he was quote healthy um, to end the season, but Shea Weber also played in game five of the Stanley cup final and never to be heard from again. So take it for what it's worth. I just think the pileup of injuries has been significant. And we've talked about this a million times that the biggest, you know, one of the biggest attributes needed for a goalie is dependability and reliability. And he just doesn't have it. So even if he's an LTIR candidate, I still think the Leafs would like to try and find a way to move the contract because they'd really prefer not to be operating an LTIR and, um, you you did. I heard you mention on the lead in that, you know, the the mix between Tree Living guys and Dubas guys. He Brad Tree Living did address the idea of Brandon Pridham potentially leaving um, yesterday as he wrapped up the draft, and he, he was just saying he's the best in the world at what he does. Um, so I personally don't expect him to be going anywhere, but I am curious to see what. Kyle Dubas does next in Pittsburgh and who he tries to target if he ends up hiring a GM. Um, But when it comes to Samsonov, like just from a pure numbers perspective and looking at the comps, um, I think on a short-term deal, you know, thinking like two years or so, he's probably in line to essentially double his money, you know, looking in that three, five to three, seven, five neighborhood. And then if he's, looking for a bit longer term and you're buying more UFA years, you're probably somewhere in the fours. So I I think the big question for the Leafs is as they wrestle with Samsonov and and coming off the year that he had, and it seems like he really liked playing in Toronto. Do you want to add some term or are you really comfortable addressing it year by year? Like when I'm dealing with that realm of goaltenders, meaning not in the super elite Connor Hellebuck, you know, one of five or six guys in the league that there are no question marks every night with. I, me personally, I'm not going beyond two or three years with a guy because the goaltending carousel is always spinning and there's always someone else to grab. And you never really know what you're getting, not just week to week, but, you know, month to month and year to year that it's difficult to, to really lock yourself in. But that's what I'm more curious about than anything with Sam Sonoff is what kind of term are the Leafs shooting for? Yeah, it's tough to picture goalies getting term, especially uh, even him where good season, but it was always meant to be a lottery ticket. And I feel like, yeah, you're you're more likely to go with the, the short term. So let's let's move And by the way, um, wanted to point out quickly, um, yeah. I wouldn't be shocked at all to see Brad Tree Living take a, a run at Dan Vladar. I think he really liked him in Calgary and obviously the extension that he gave him would be pretty friendly for the Leafs as well in the twos. Well, and, I, you know, if you're looking at that situation, Calgary also has a, a goaltender that is coming up the ranks that maybe they want to end up making some space for. So does a guy like yep. Ladar come with an actual price tag, or is that someone that Calgary's looking more so to dump? Not dump, for sure. Um, they see him as someone that has value. He's, I think, number 30 on my trade targets board. 
I, I think they're looking somewhere in the neighborhood of like a second round pick for him. I don't think Toronto has any of those <laughs> for like three more years. So it's tough to, tough to make those trades. Okay, so yeah, the stuff that I was mentioning off the top, you know, they're standing up there at the stage and they're welcoming the draft picks. They're bringing in Easton Cowan. And I'm, I'm staring at those guys, as I mentioned, and I go, holy crap, this is, yeah, when you see it all right in front of you, it's, it's difficult not to think about it, especially given the context of yesterday where Sheldon Keefe is talking about things being uncertain and uncomfortable, right? Like, what, what's your read on the state of comfortability when it comes to the Leafs' front office in terms of how these guys have started to integrate and work together? Because, like, yeah, you mentioned, if they're hinting at moving or Pridham end up, ends up moving, at least they're exploring or understanding the potential of that. It's always felt like that was going to happen with Wes Clark, too. Now the draft is over. Like, are, are we going to start to see some meaningful changes in the front office? Do you think that the fact that they are having to integrate these two groups sort of on the fly here ahead of a big transitional period has affected the way that they're doing business? Like, what is your read on the state of the Leafs front office as it stands today? I Just listening to you describe it, I think it kind of feels like a bigger deal than what it really is because the truth is look at the the state of the league 11 of the 32 teams have changed out their general manager in the last year this is a normal transition period and more than that i would say given the relative lack of roster change that we're expecting especially as it relates to the the quote unquote core four that it's, I think it's a really positive, healthy thing for everyone to be uncomfortable a little bit. Hmm. Like, ask questions, shake things up, find out who fits, who doesn't, uh, find out who's going to be scurrying to Pittsburgh, or at least trying, and then see what other kind of changes that Brad Tree Living makes. Like, there's a bunch of openings, not just, um, you know, on the bench and, and the coaching staff, but to reshape the look of the Toronto Marlies. Uh, what happens with, you know, as you mentioned, um, you know, Brandon Pridham and Wes Clark and, and all those different guys that it's not lost on me that Brad Tree Living had Wes Clark make the selection uh, and voice it. It's interesting. Like, why, why is that? What was the thought process behind it? Is that just something he always does? Is he trying to entice Wes Clark to stay. I don't know what the thought process is. I'd be curious. Maybe there's nothing to it at all. I have but... a theory. Okay. The theory is just pretty plain and simple. I thought the same thing as you is, hey, he's trying to entice him to stay. He's trying to make him seem more important. To me, the theory is more, especially considering that, yeah, they, they took a bit of a leap when it came to where Easton Cowan was projected, and I, I don't mind the pick. Like, it's fine. You take a London Knights guy. The Leafs have incredible success coming from that organization. He's in the backyard. He was a late riser. I get all of it. But I, I did wonder if there was a little bit of, hey, this isn't really my draft. This is your draft. I wasn't even allowed to be on the draft floor until pick 16. Uh, you're owning this. Like, you want to take this leap? You want to go and take a bit of a long shot in the first round? Like, let's have it be your face that's attached to this forever. Well, and to be fair, like, there aren't, there haven't been many hits on the Leafs draft board. And, and part of it yeah. is um, when you don't have that many picks, the job becomes more difficult and you're picking late. But at the same time, it's not like you can look at the Leafs draft board the last handful of years and say, 
oh, wow, look at the diamonds in the rough that, they, that this team has been able to mine. That just mm-hmm. that hasn't been the case, and I do think there's part of that, not just the awkwardness of the transition that existed with the Flames and them not wanting Brad Tree Living to be involved, but also, you're right, I think part of that maybe is, hey, this ain't my pick. If this guy ends up floundering and we did reach and it doesn't work out, let's just remind everyone who exactly made the call. Yeah, that I, I guess the only difference I would say with the Leafs and and maybe that's just a byproduct of them being the Leafs and them being so public is those other transitions that you talked about with the front offices. Maybe there was more leaked and it just didn't end up being bigger stories. But man, there were some pieces for when Dubas was fired about guys in the organization in the rank and file just wanting to file out and being in that Dubas camp and leaking things to the media and and there was at least a little there was about a week week and a half two weeks of hey Toronto's going to suss out who these leaks are and they're going to find out who the actual loyalists are and then that just never really ended up happening and maybe we see it down the line but yeah it would feel like it's a little bit harder to do business if you don't trust all of the people around you know they don't feel like your guys moving forward again you have to temper that with the idea that these guys are looking for long uh, long careers and that yeah having yourself all of a sudden be you know treacherous to your own organization is not exactly a good look for you not something that you're going to come back from so I I don't want to fully succession this and turn it into like a big drama thing but yeah I just it they were different Frank like this this was a little bit more acrimonious and some of those guys like they don't have NHL opportunities if it's not for Kyle Dubas well, I think there's some accuracy to that. All I'll say is this, um, having a pretty good sense of what's happening in there, yeah, it's not really that hard to suss out who is loyal to who. Yeah. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah, but that's why I'm surprised that some of those guys are still there. Or that I would be even more surprised if some of those guys are still there moving forward. Part of it was, let's just get through the draft and free agency, and then we'll figure it out. Cause yeah. He wasn't hired until June, so to think that you're going to come in and guess everyone, then what? Mm-hmm. So, again, like you just mentioned, you don't think that the Leafs are going to end up bringing back any of their free agents, which, yeah, it's tough considering that their bottom six right now, I think, is David Camp, Sam Lafferty, and then they would have to be bringing up like Nick Robertson, Pontus Holmberg, and Bobby McMahon. I think that's off the top of my head. So they've got moves. Like they, they need to materially change the forward group in some way. H- how do they do that then? Like, does, are, are they going diamond in the rough hunting through free agency? Are, are there some names that you're hearing that they're really curious about checking in on or hoping that they can land when we hit, uh, when we hit July 1st tomorrow? Haven't heard specific names, but I think this is like, I've seen a lot of people make fun of this free agent class and, to be fair, it's one of the worst that we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think what it represents is a significant opportunity to do some bargain basement hunting. Like, the intrigue for me on Canada Day is not the top 10. It's where does the guys 25 to 50 go and how much do they cost? Because I think there's some good, impactful players that aren't going to cost you an arm and a leg that I think can help you win guys like a Garnet Hathaway or a versatile Ryan Donato, or like there's guys out there that are going to be 2 million bucks or two and a half million bucks that, you know, I think you can plug into your lineup and 
really get something from. So whether it's upgrading your penalty kill or adding some important elements to your team that you don't have, that's where you find that mix. And I have no doubt that they're going to be pretty active in trying to find some different things. Do you think, like, uh, there's been a lot of talk recently about, you know, markets that players want to be in, especially with Vegas winning, right? We looked at it and we went, all right, state tax, golfing, buy a big house, good weather, blah, 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 go on down the line. And then there's still stuff like I saw Marcia So on Spitting Chicklets talking about how if you go five games without scoring a goal that people aren't going to be all over you in Vegas. And, yeah, just a reminder that that is such a commodity for players. Do you, has any of the, the last off season? impacted you think the way that players view Toronto like is this still a place where we're going to end up potentially seeing guys like the buntings of the world or um yeah the Mark Giordano's guys like that who could have ended up getting more money but actually seek out Toronto as a landing spot of hey maybe I can play up the lineup or maybe I'm more visible maybe I can make more money or is that starting to dissipate given the level of drama that it's hitting here in the city right now no I don't I don't think anyone's scared off by the drama. I think people are more intoxicated by the opportunity to win. And regardless of where this team is at right now at this juncture and the playoff failures that have been there, players around the league still look at Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner and the group there and say, with those guys leading the way, I think we have a chance. And Really, when you're looking for a team, all you really want is to know that you have an opportunity to be one of the five, eight, whatever number teams that have a legitimate chance when the puck drops in October to win the Stanley Cup. And the Leafs, you know, playoff, previous playoff failures notwithstanding, the Leafs still fall in that category. And the organization treats you exceptionally well. They take care of everything. Um, that's And then add in the potential visibility factor. I think it's a really easy place to convince someone to come on a short-term, short-money deal to try and rejuvenate or resuscitate their career. And that's kind of the same thing that I just mentioned. Luke Shen today specifically is going to have to you know, deliberate and decipher is – the opportunity to win in Toronto better than the extra money in my pocket. And I think it's going to be an interesting test case because he also had been there previously and understands and likes what it's like to play in Toronto. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I saved the big one for last, which is the, at least the biggest topic right now, which is Nylander, right? And okay. So the Meyer contract comes in and the Pierre-Luc Dubois contract comes in and, as a hockey fan and you look at those two players, you would think, all right, well, Nylander, your money is between those two guys, 8-5 and 8-8. And yeah, Timo Meyer took less than a lot of us anticipated, but that the, that's the way the cookie crumbles, I guess, is what I'd be saying to William Nylander today. Doesn't seem, though, like his camp cares about those figures. Like, what's your read on the latest with William Nylander and his negotiations with Toronto? You know, they've done a really good job of keeping it pretty quiet um i do think the leafs have put some real pressure or heat on to try and get this closed out and completed before tomorrow because they want to have some sense of what that market looks like and really if they are reaching 
if it's possible that there's no path forward and they're reaching a dead end. I've said this. I said it with Justin and Ailish on Monday. If they get to a spot where they think they can't get this done, I don't think Brad Tree Living has any fear to trade him. And, you know, I don't know. He's gone back and forth with Lewis Gross, the agent for Nylander, for a while. Um, they have a, a previous history, having also represented Johnny Gaudreau. And I just, I know there's no hard and fast rule. I just don't see him going down that path again of playing it into the season and just hoping you can get it done and then allowing him to walk for nothing. I just don't, I don't see it. But at the same time, I think internally, I don't want to say there's pressure, but I think William Nylander has a big fan in Brendan Shanahan. And I'd be curious to see how that impacts how the next couple of weeks go. Well, I was going to say, if, if we don't, like, let's try to put a bit of a timeline on this. If we don't see William Nylander sign in the next week, how much do you think that increases the likeliness that he does get dealt? A lot. Uh-huh. So the move has to happen fairly quickly here for us to feel fairly certain about his future in Toronto. I would say with each passing day, it, the trade possibility and likelihood continues to go up. I don't know so, what percentage points or whatever it is, but yeah, I, I, I don't see it lingering forever. So with him, though, I, I guess the secondary part of this is if he can't get a deal done in Toronto, right, that has to mean that the money is fairly significant and he does only have the one-year term. So if you're a team that is trading for him, you have to not only be willing to give up the assets, but then the money... And, yeah, like, this is a guy who negotiated into a season. Like, he missed half a year of hockey because he was willing to fight over the money that he was going to get. I I can't imagine that, yeah, him and his camp are very easy to negotiate with. Like, what is his market exactly right now? How many teams, if if it's available or if it's known, hey, William Nylander is now up for grabs, how many teams call? A third of the league, if not more. Like, and when I say a third of the league, I don't mean like tire kickers. I mean like actual legitimate interest. Mm-hmm. So the market is still pretty big for Nylander. The, the question then becomes out of that third, the trade package that Toronto wants to return back has to be guys that impact the roster right now. Like they're not taking back, you know, draft picks, right? And, and prospects to try to retool on the fly. This is a win now move if they end up trading Nylander. Yeah, and I think the idea would be to get some players that are, you know, within an age range that allows the Leafs to still have some semblance of control and or term. But you do feel as though the package would still be very significant in return for Nylander. Like this isn't someone that. Yeah, no, without, like without question. Yeah. Okay. There's only so many players in the league that are, that are difference makers and especially on the wing. And he's one of the few play driving wingers that exists in the league. Uh, Frank, I really appreciate the time. It's good to have you back in the Eastern time zone. It's good to have you back where, yeah, you don't have to sweat through every shirt. Thanks for doing this, buddy. Have a good one. Cheers, pal. Frank Cervelli, insider and president of Daily Faceoff and the Pro Hockey Writers Association. So that's interesting. That's a good one. Rapid-fire thoughts here off of that interview. One is... It's, I'm sorry. Yeah, fine. Transitionary stuff is normal and 
like you have this in all organizations, right? A new boss comes in, not everybody ends up getting fired and people get over losing the boss, but this is a different kind of business. And there are some guys at the very top of the Leafs organization and names that I mentioned who are, yeah, heavily, heavily, heavily linked to Kyle Dubas. And it's just, it's strange picturing how those working relationships are going to be moving forward. Two, uh, sort of what we thought all along, but that the Leafs aren't in on their own free agents. And that makes sense to a degree because, yeah, Ryan O'Reilly wasn't going to come back, nor do I think that he's a long-term roster fit. Let's just be honest. His age and the recent injury history, the mobility of the player, it's, it's all impacted by the fact that you have John Tavares in the two-hole. And that was really good for last season, and I still don't mind the trade, even though it did come with a significant cost. I, I just don't see how Toronto could get in the mix for a guy like Ryan O'Reilly. Shen, that's a big one, though. You really want to bring Luke Shen back. He worked with Morgan Riley, and I mentioned this the other day on the show. Like, yeah, you're going to have to find some ways to shelter him. You're going to have to find some ways to make sure that he gets to the finish line. He's not beat up the way that Mark Giordano was last year. But then, you know, you do bring him back, and your blue line... Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how sure you feel about it. And so when you're talking to Frank and saying, well, if Toronto's going to shake up their blue line, it's going to have to happen through a trade, I think that you're circling two names. You're circling Timothy Lilligren, but again, tough to imagine how you're drastically improving moving Lilligren, who had some really solid stretches last year, showed real development in his game and is on that really team-friendly cap figure. But strangely enough, the other name you're circling is TJ Brody. And then you recall that Trey Living didn't bring TJ Brody back. Just a thought. Like, if they're bringing back Shen, they're not trading Morgan Riley, right? McCabe makes too little. It's how do you upgrade on that given that you got Chicago to retain 50% of the salaries, making $2 bucks, It's just a deal. It's a steal. Nobody wants Connor Timmins. Like, that's not a trade piece. Like, that's not... <laughs> you're not trading Connor Timmins. So so what is it? What does it become? Well, it's Brody or Lilligren. It's just deduction. And then lastly... I'm not, I'm, well, sorry, two last things. One, I'm not worried about the lottery ticket thing. I actually think that's kind of fun, but it's also only so much. Like, it seems pretty clear that the bottom six is going to be built around, yeah, the s- similar guys that we've seen the last couple of years. And you know, it's going to be the Cali Yarncroft types, the Michael Bunting types, and then potentially a couple of heavier vets because that seems to be the Shanahan way. That's the way that he always kind of imposes himself on the roster. But then lastly, the Nylander thing. Man, if, if they're that far apart still today, and Frank's saying that every passing day it gets harder and harder. And yeah, Trey Living's history of letting a player walk for nothing who had the same agent. I don't know. Like if that doesn't get done, if they don't make some meaningful headway on a deal today, you got to think that we start to get into some pretty interesting waters when it comes to a potential William Nylander deal, which I know makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but 10 million bucks is just, it's, it's not, that, that just does not make sense for the Toronto Maple Leafs as a, projecting a rising cap or not. Anyways, let's take a quick, quick break. The Botano best bet hit again yesterday, and it was a no sweater. Um, I'm going to post some best bets over Canada Day weekend. Um, by the way, keep an eye out. We will be doing emergency podcasts for Leafs Talk 
um, McKee and I over the weekend should things be happening. So we're working. We're on call. We're sitting around and waiting for things to happen, the two of us, and hoping that we can actually get in a little bit of sun. But yeah, we're going to have emergency podcasts. So make sure that you subscribe to Leafs uh, Talk Feed. Make sure you follow me on Twitter and Instagram at JD Bunkus and hit me up anytime if you want to play on Botano. Uh, because yeah, best bet streak continues to be hot. And uh, I hope we keep that going today with a little bit of local flavor. Quick break, and that's next. Sportsnet 590. 590. The fan. All right, it's time for the hottest segment in sports betting. Best bets brought to you by Botano Sportsbook, the 2022 Global Sports Betting Operator of the Year. Uh, Again, I appreciate everybody that keeps sending me bet slips and people that reach out that do want to play Botano or have played it and have given me the glowing reviews. Because, yeah, I told you, it really is a phenomenal book. Anyways, I'm on to the local team tonight. I'm going to go with the plus number in this one, in the first five, rather than playing it safe and go with the five and a half. I'm going to go with the Blue Jays and Red Sox combined first five under of four and a half total runs. You can get that at plus 110 right now on Botano Sportsbook. If you want to tease it and you want to try to play it safe, it's minus 143 for the under five and a half. If you really, yeah, if you're, if you're a parlay player or someone that's going to add to that. Red Sox offense has been dreadful lately. And Barrios actually has a really good track record against a couple of their guys. And most notably, he's been terrific against Devers, who in 25 at-bats is hitting 200 against them. Verdugo has actually had a lot of success against Barrios. So maybe if you want to hedge this a bit, you play a little parlay with Verdugo getting a hit. But yeah, you look to the other side. Blue Jays not hitting lefties very well this year. And yeah, they've just... They're, Chapman is 14 at-bats, no hits ever against James Paxton. Um, Springer, 242. Guerrero, 250. It's just, it's, it's not a murderer's row of guys against James Paxton. Anyways, that is your Botano best bet. Hit me up on Instagram or Twitter if you want to play. Uh, and I will be posting best bets over the weekend. We'll see you then.